Good morning, Bethel. I know it's already been said, but I want to take the opportunity to wish all of the dads out there a very happy Father's Day. Uh, we're glad that you're here worshiping together with us. Um, so I, I trust that this is going to be a joyful day celebrating with your loved ones. Um, I'm wondering if there's any first-time dads, like that this is your first Father's Day. So congratulations to you guys, uh, and I hope this is a really special day for you. I know that there's a couple in here that have the privilege of worshiping with multiple generations of fathers, right? So there's at least two that I know of that are here worshiping with both their dad and their children. So if there's anybody else that I haven't thought of, um, just a, a special day of privilege for you. So what a, what a treat it is to see uh, that generational worship. Um, I also want to give a, a special shout out to fathers that may have entered fatherhood through maybe some non-traditional paths. So I think of those adoptive fathers and, and foster care fathers, um, stepfathers, and other spiritual fathers that Bill mentioned in his prayer. So I pray that God richly blesses you this day for the sacrifices that you've made for your families. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that Father's Day is not necessarily a joyful day for every dad. I think it could be incredibly painful for a dad that um, either no longer or, or never had the chance to hold his children in his arms and instead must hold them only in his heart. So whether you're mourning a, a child that God has called home to be with himself or perhaps grieving a child that has wandered far from home, I pray that God today would bring you comfort and peace that passes understanding. I, I can't even fathom what it must be like to lose a child, but I do know it's one of the heaviest burdens that a father can be called to bear. So I pray God's peace on you today. I do know what it's like to miss a father. So uh, I want to offer my sympathy to those for whom this Father's Day carries bittersweet emotions of remembering a father who's no longer living. There's probably a lot of other emotions as well, right? For those struggling with uh, absent, broken, or strained father-child relationships, um, for those maybe whose longing to be a father has not yet been fulfilled. So may God prove himself today to be an all-sufficient, all-loving, all-merciful, heavenly father to you. So it's fitting today that the text that we're considering focuses on a father. Greg, you weren't wrong. We are going to John chapter 4. John chapter 1 was just such a beautiful setup to some of those themes so we're going to be focusing on a father in the central role, and it would have been really tempting, I think, to structure the sermon like, around that father's story. But for example, this one prominent evangelical teacher, he suggested this outline for today's passage. That as a father, the royal official admitted his needs, loved his children, believed God's word, and walked by faith. That's not today's outline, but they're probably all true statements, um, definitely some things in there that are reasonable applications to draw out from this text. 
But I think that's not the timeless truth that John was trying to communicate in John chapter 4. So lessons on fatherhood from the royal official are not the point of the passage. Any more than lessons on sharing your lunch are the point of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. At least that's not how I'm going to preach it today. So how I'm proposing that we approach this text is with the contrasting encounters between Jesus and Nicodemus and Jesus at the woman in the, at the well as this backdrop for us, the sign of Jesus healing the royal official's son points us to the fact that authentic saving faith must believe the word of Jesus and receive him as both Christ and Lord. I'll say that one more time. The sign points us to the fact that authentic faith, authentic saving faith must believe the word of Jesus and receive him as both Christ and Lord. So we're going to look at that passage in two parts. First, we're going to look at the unwelcoming welcome of the Galilean Jews. And then second, we're going to look at the unbelieving belief of the official. Uh, in that first part, we're going to have to wrestle with a couple of sticky wickets, uh, some, some problematic um, parts of the text. We've got to figure out what, what they're doing there. And then in the second part, we're going to look at three stages of um, this man's journey, his genesis of faith, the test of his faith, and finally the progress of his faith. So if you're one that um, is taking notes, it's not too late to run out to the lobby and grab one of these little slips of paper that outline is there for you, um, and obviously, as always, the, the points will be up on the screen. So I've titled today's message, The Journey of Genuine Faith. So uh, let's turn now to that text, uh, John chapter 4. Uh, you'll find it on page 889 uh, if you're using a pew Bible. And so I'm going to read the text, and then we'll pray and dive in. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed 
and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning as the one who has existed without any hint of change or shadow of turning since before time. The one who created us and created all things. The one who gives life and gives all things. We pray that you would help us grow in grace and in knowledge this morning, especially in the knowledge of your glory. Father, we, we pray as we behold your glory that you would continue your work of conforming us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us see Jesus for who he really is and help us savor him in a fresh way. Oh Lord, would you incline our ears this morning to hear your word and open the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of your Son and to wonder. We believe he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Help our unbelief. Help us reject false images of Jesus. Help us stop searching for signs and start searching for Jesus. Forgive us when we try to make Jesus in our image. Lord, forgive us when we try to create a Christ that meets our needs and satisfies our demands. Lord, I, keep, I pray that you would keep me accountable to this text. Lord, would you grant that I speak only the words that are in accord with the unchanging, authoritative truth of your word. And Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit, who inspired the narrative that's before us today, we pray that he would be found writing it over again, not on the pages of a book, but on the tablets of our hearts. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's dive into the text and see where is John going to take us on this journey of genuine faith. Verse 43 says, After the two days he departed for Galilee. Now before we just blow right past this transitional verse, we need to pause for a second and consider the backdrop where we are. Right? That's what John is doing in 43. He's pointing us back to where we've come from. So we're picking up a journey that started at the beginning of this chapter in verse 3, where we're first told that Jesus had left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, remember that last week we actually had a similar narrative bridge, right? At the clearing of the temple, um, and it's, John tells us, well, actually before the clearing of the temple, John tells us in 2.12 that he and his disciples went uh, down to Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, stayed there for a few days, and then later it says at the time of the Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Look, keep in mind that during the first century, they didn't have maps pointing 
up for north, right? North being at the top of the map is actually a pretty recent convention. Um, so even though we can see through our modern lenses that, that Jerusalem is actually south of Galilee, in the Bible, everyone always goes up to Jerusalem. The, the city sits um, about 2,500 feet above sea level, it's like 40 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea, 20 miles west of the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth. So you always go up to Jerusalem. Um, it's also the site of the Temple of God. So it's a destination for festivals three times a year. All Jews are supposed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, the Feast of the First Fruits, and Tabernacles, the Feast of the Harvest. So the idea of going up to Jerusalem isn't just a geographic ascent, it's also a, a place of spiritual ascent. So that aside, Jesus started his ministry in Galilee, called the first disciples, um, performed his first sign at Cana. Um, then he went up to Jerusalem for Passover, where he drove the money changers out of the temple. And then he had, remember, his nighttime discourse with Nicodemus. Now, we didn't study this passage, but it's an important piece of the context for today. So we'll touch on that. Um, but then we're told that he left Jerusalem. Uh, he was getting too popular there, so he left there and uh, went then to uh, Galilee. Um, but he had this detour first, um, which doesn't really look like a detour when you look at the map, but uh, most people would have opted for a more conservative route uh, going from Jerusalem uh, uh, to Galilee, north to Galilee. They would have crossed over the Jordan and then passed through the low country there um, rather than risk going you know, through the territory of the Samaritans um, who were kind of hated by the Jews. Um, but we're told that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, that word in there said it was necessary. Uh, what that's doing is it's indicating that it was a divine necessity for Jesus to go through Samaria. It was according to the plan and will of God. So even though, again, we didn't cover this uh, in our study, um, you'll probably remember that in Samaria... Jesus encountered the woman at the well. And their conversation there centered on a couple of themes, living water and true worship. Um, he didn't perform any miraculous signs in Samaria, except, I guess, through the, you know, his divine omniscience, revealing to her uh, the details of her own sordid past. And actually, the Samaritan woman concluded that that knowledge was something only Messiah could possibly know about. So she went into the village, and she told everybody that she knew. She said, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Based on her testimony, the whole village came out, and we're told uh, that many believed. So in verses 40 and 41, just before the passage that we're looking at today, it says, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. This is the only time in all four Gospels that we actually see this kind of large-scale repentance and conversion. 
the whole town coming to faith. And they weren't even Jews. So I don't think it's any coincidence that John chooses these two specific encounters, the rabbi in Jerusalem and the adulterous woman in Samaria, to contrast superficial and authentic faith. Okay, so we see Nicodemus. He's a devout, respected, law-abiding, God-fearing man who's devoted his entire life to studying, teaching, and living out God's Word in an effort to try to honor God. He comes to Jesus and says, look, we've seen the signs, and we know you're from God. Jesus looks back at Nicodemus and said, your belief is insufficient for salvation. You must be born again. So Jesus was familiar with this type of faith. Um, he had watched the Jews in Jerusalem, and he knew what they were all about. Look back, if you will, to the, to the end of John 2. So just before uh, Nicodemus, this is the, the passage right in between uh, Jesus cleansing the temple and Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And it says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man, dot, dot, dot. I love how John's clever wordplay there kind of immediately connects Nicodemus with the shallow faith of the Jews. So Jesus knows the heart of all men, including Nicodemus. And it says there, many believed, but Jesus didn't believe them. Many trusted in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. A lot of people accepted Jesus, but Jesus didn't accept them. So from the beginning of the gospel, John is trying to show us that there is a faith that is necessary. It revolves around the necessity and centrality of belief in Jesus. But there's a kind of faith that doesn't save. So go back to the purpose statement of John's gospel, which is actually forward, right? It's at the end of the gospel. He gives us the purpose statement. He says, but these are written so that you may believe. Believe what? Believe in signs? No, the signs point to something. The signs aren't the purpose. They're not the end. The signs are the means to the end. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the signs point us to the glory of Jesus. They reveal who Jesus really is. He's the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And the Jews in chapter 2, and as a primary example, Nicodemus in chapter 3, believe the signs, but not in what they pointed to. Their belief was merely superficial. It was just excitement about miracles. 
but without the supernatural regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, without being born again, they couldn't believe Jesus for who he really is. So then in the beginning of chapter 4, you've got the contrast, right, to the shallow, inadequate faith of the Jews. What Nicodemus couldn't understand, the woman at the well understood. What the Jews failed to believe, the Samaritans readily believed and accepted, even without any miracles. So the emphasis on, in chapter 4 isn't on the signs, but on God's word. Look again at verses 41 and 42. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So that's where we pick up today's passage. On the heels of this stark contrast between superficial faith in the signs of Jesus and authentic faith in the person of Jesus, in the word of Jesus. So now we've got this quirky little passage of this unwelcoming welcome, which we've got to figure out what that means, and an unbelieving belief. But if we're going to get to the end of the chapter today, we've got to get past this first verse, right? So let's keep on trucking here. Uh, verse 44 says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. All right, well, if we had any thoughts of picking up the pace here and breezing on through, prepare to be disappointed. Got to pause here and figure out what is this verse all about? I, I think the text would be a whole lot simpler if we just cut it out. I mean, follow along, right? After the two days, he departed for Galilee. So when he came to Galilee, great, keep going from there. But we're not given that option. Um, every word of Scripture is inspired and is useful. So what's the point, then, of quoting this proverb? Translators have struggled with this verse. In fact, you know, some of them, like ESV, puts the whole thing in parentheses as if to just set it apart. Like, we'll, we'll think about this separately from the rest of the text. Um, others have gone so far as to just take out the words that are problematic. So they've eliminated the word for or because at the beginning. But the Greek language is just, it's, it's typically really purposeful about cause and effect. And so the conjunction at the beginning of the verse is used to express cause. Okay? After the two days, he departed for Galilee because. Because why? Because Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. That's weird, right? I mean, it's no wonder that they tried to change it. They don't honor him at home they don't honor me at home, therefore, I'm going home. Well, it's not a mistake, right? It's there on purpose. So we've got to wrestle with what's, what is it doing? What are some of our options? Maybe hometown isn't referring to Galilee. Maybe instead it's referring to Judea. After all, he was born in Bethlehem, right? They didn't honor him in Judea, so now he's going to Galilee. Um... All right, a couple problems there. One, they actually 
did receive him in Judea, right? He got a huge reception there. In fact, he got so popular there that he had to leave. So, but also, John doesn't really ever mention his Galilean roots. I mean, he does mention Galilean, sorry. He doesn't mention his Judean roots, okay? He emphasizes Galilean roots. So, uh, for example, John 1, 46, where he quotes Nathaniel saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus is from Nazareth. Um, John chapter 7, verses 41 and 42. John's quoting others as saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Jesus came from Galilee. So, all right, let's look. Is there any other clues in the text? Well, John says that Jesus himself had testified this. All right, well, if we look at the other three Gospels, we actually can find those direct quotes where Jesus said that. And guess what? In all three accounts, the context is clear that Jesus is referring to Galilee and more specifically to Nazareth. So I think we've got to reject any other novel interpretations here and stick with the plain sense of the text. So what is John saying then? Is he simply telling us that Jesus won't have any more success uh, there than he had in Judea? Did Jesus simply go to Galilee to prove the proverb, familiarity breeds contempt? Right? We've all heard that. Is that. We're just saying, well, Jesus is familiar with that and he wants to show that it's true. I mean, John seems to be saying that Jesus is intentionally going where he knows he won't be honored the way he was in Samaria. He says he's coming again to his own people knowing that they don't accept him for who he is. He went there knowing that he would be given a cold reception. But why? Well, Jemmy actually read the passage for us earlier that gives us that clue, right? Chapter 1, verse 11, tells us that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So even though the argument of verse 44 seems maybe a little strange or out of place to us, go to a place because they will reject you, it wasn't a strange argument for Jesus. It was part of the divine plan. Just like it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria, it is now necessary for him to continue on to his homeland. It's necessary for him to keep offering himself to his own people, even though he knows his own people will reject him. And in the end, it's going to get him killed, which is exactly why he came. So, with that in mind, we move on to the next verse, 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now, wait a second. I thought Galilee was supposed to reject Jesus, right? He goes to his homeland, to his own people, so as not to be honored. And then immediately John says, so, or therefore, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Uh, once again, translators are faced with a bit of a conundrum here. So the verse starts with this conjunction. It indicates that something follows from another. 
It's been variously translated then or therefore or accordingly or consequently or these things being so. So that word there is used to draw a conclusion or connect sentences together logically. How can John say a prophet has no honor in his hometown, therefore they welcomed him? I think the answer comes with the qualifying statement that's immediately after that. They welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. So much like the Jews in Jerusalem, and very much unlike the uh, Samaritans, the Galileans welcome Jesus only because they had seen this show before. So maybe they're just curiosity seekers, and they're hoping to be entertained by Jesus in the magic show. Maybe they were looking for personal gain, right? They're in it for themselves, eager to jump on the, the Jesus bandwagon to see what he can do for them. But they were interested in what he could do, not in who he is. So they believe him, absolutely. There's no question about it, okay? But they believed him as a miracle worker, not as Messiah. In fact, let's be clear about this. The Gospels testify to a universal acceptance of Jesus as miracle worker. You look back through, and you can see dozens of miracles that are recorded, even just during this Galilean ministry. Right? He was there about 16 months and performing miracles every day. Now, John's really selective about the ones that he reports on. He includes this one that we'll talk about today, and he includes the feeding of the 5,000. During the Galilean period, no others. But the other gospel writers, they testify to a lot more, right? You can go back through, and you can see Jesus supernaturally provide fish, bread, wine, even a couple of shekels. Remember that story? Uh, you can see Jesus. Let's see, what else does he do? He casts out evil spirits, he heals the blind and the deaf and the mute and the sick and the injured and the paralyzed. Okay. Jesus is controlling the elements of nature. And you'll see him eventually raise people from the dead, including himself. And guess what? No one, no one ever questioned or doubted his miracle power. There's no record in Scripture of anyone casting any doubt on his ability to do these miraculous things. So the Galileans welcomed Jesus, but just like Jesus had prophesied, they didn't honor him. Their belief was like that of Nicodemus, who said to Jesus, we know that you're a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But John wants us to go deeper than that superficial Galilean faith, which believes in Jesus as a miracle worker, seeks him only for what he can do for us. What John is trying to do is get us to see the sign and believe in Jesus for who he is, the Christ, the Son of God, so that we might have life in his name. Remember John 20, 31. So before we move on to the, the second part of this narrative, I need to ask a question. What's keeping you this morning from seeing and savoring 
the glory of Jesus. Is there anything about familiarity that's breeding contempt, right? Hindering your faith? Are there any sinful patterns this morning that are making it hard for you to receive Jesus and, and really honor him as Messiah and Son of God? I speak to the fathers who are shepherding their, their children, and in doing this, I have to speak to my own heart. Is the familiarity of Jesus breeding unbelief? So, here's what I mean by that. Are you giving your children the idea that Jesus is just a, a box you check off in your life? If all you're giving them is exposure to Jesus without pointing to and marveling at his glory, you actually run the risk of inoculating them against true belief and against the real Jesus. So familiarity without genuine faith can be deadly. So we're finally ready to introduce the other character in today's story. We move on to verse 46 and 47. So, when Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, there he made, oh, I'm sorry, where he made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. First, we've got to get this out of the way. Yes, there are some similarities between this account and one that's found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, and paralleled in Luke 7, 1 to 10. So some have actually suggested that it's merely just another version of the same story. But the differences are just too many and too significant to be overlooked. So let me give you a couple of examples. First, uh, in, uh, in the synoptics, the, the location, Jesus was in Capernaum. In John, he's actually in Cana. Who is it that we're talking about? The relationship, right? In, in the synoptics, it, it talks about the centurion. Uh, and in John, it's a royal official, just a different word. I mean, I guess it could be different, a synonym for the same person. But in the synoptics, it speaks of either a, a slave in, in one version or a servant in another. But here it talks about a son, and it's definitely a different Greek word that's being used for that. What about the, the illness that, uh, you know, that, were, that Jesus healed? Uh, in one, it talks about a paralysis, and the other, fever. So there, there's differences here. Um, the request that was brought to Jesus in, in the synoptics, um, that person comes and says, just say the word and he'll be healed. Versus this guy that comes and says, you know, come down. Um, so, you know, perhaps all of those could be reconciled in some way, but here's what I think is the kind of the smoking gun is it, it clearly tells us that these are different accounts is how does Jesus respond? In the synoptics, in that version of the story, he responds with praise, 
for the request. He says, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. That is not the case in today's passage, and we'll get to that. Instead, what we find today is a rebuke. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So I think it's probably safe to assume that this account here in John is, is unique. So who's the official? Well, the Greek term basilikos. It's uh, translated in the ESV just the word official. In other versions, you might see royal official or nobleman. Um, and it can either mean a person of royal blood or probably more likely in this case, a servant to the king. So the only king uh, in that part of the world was Herod Antipas. He was the tetrarch of Galilee. Um, he was the son of Herod the Great. You remember him from uh, earlier at the time Jesus was born. So he, he would have been a vassal king. Uh, he served the purposes of Rome, and he was hated by the Jews. Um, he was denounced, you remember, by John the Baptist for his incestuous relationship with his brother's wife. So, uh, you know, some commentators suggest that this man could have been uh, Chusa, who is mentioned in Luke 8.3 as Herod's steward, remember, whose wife Joanna contributed to Jesus' support. It's a possibility. Or perhaps Menaean, right? He's talked about in, in uh, Acts 13.1 as having been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Another possibility. It's mere conjecture. But I think ultimately it's not important that we identify him. I think it's more important that we identify with him. So he is just a dad. He's a desperate father. He's at his wit's end, and he's clinging to the hope that this miracle worker from Nazareth can somehow help. Well, apparently this official had heard reports from the Galileans uh, who had witnessed the mighty works done in Jerusalem. So he made the 15 to 20 mile trek up into the hill country from Capernaum uh, to find Jesus. So if the official had maybe left home around sunrise, um, he could have reached Cana by about noon. And his purpose in this journey was not to worship Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. No, no. His, his purpose was simply to beg Jesus to come to his home and heal his dying son. So at this point in his journey, the fledgling faith that he had really only extended to the healing of his sick child. He didn't realize that it was his own heart that needed healing. He didn't understand his own ignorance of who Jesus really is. He didn't believe the Savior's spiritual power. What he did believe was that Jesus, if he would come to his house, could prevent his child from dying of the fever. But that official probably never would have come to Jesus at all if it hadn't been for this personal crisis. He probably had sought all the doctors in Capernaum. He was a man of means, a, you know, a nobleman or a royal official. 
um, and yet he hadn't been able to get help. So trouble for him was the genesis of his faith. It was the starting point for, for this unbelieving belief in Jesus. Now, if we look back through the first four chapters of John, we're going to see people coming to Jesus through a variety of circumstances. Not everyone's faith starts off in the same way. Remember Nathaniel, right? He was brought to Jesus by a friend, and all he needed was that introduction. Faith was an instant response for him. What about Nicodemus? The starting point for his faith was his curiosity, maybe a little bit of fear, right? He had questions but was too afraid to approach Jesus in broad daylight. So he came to him under the cover of darkness to seek his answers. The starting point for the Samaritan woman may have been exclusion or isolation or loneliness. After all, what else would bring someone to a well by herself in the heat of the day? As we look back, we see that all of these circumstances are divine appointments for meeting Jesus. And I think that remains the case today. So the journey of faith, right, it can start with sheer curiosity or coincidence, but I think often it's born out of sorrow or sickness or trials or tribulation of any kind. God will often use a crisis to prompt us to seek him in ways that we never would have otherwise. The point is, whatever the starting place, it's always the work of God. It's always by his divine appointment that we come to meet Jesus. So no matter what your circumstances are, I'm asking you to see it as a starting place for faith. Belief born out of crisis is not always automatic. When, when trouble strikes, some people grow bitter. They curse God instead. We need to follow this royal official's example and seek the Lord when trials come. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon has to say about that. It may be, dear friend, that you are in trouble this morning, and if so, I pray that affliction may be the black horse upon which mercy shall ride to your door. It is a sad, sad thing with some men that the better the Lord deals with them in providence, the worse return they make. On the other hand, there are hearts that turn to the Lord when he smites them, when they drift into deep waters, when they can scarcely find bread to eat, when sickness attacks their bodies, and especially when their children are smitten, then they begin to think of God and better things. Blessed is the discipline of the great Father in such a case. It is well for the troubled if their tribulation bruises their heart to repentance, and repentance leads them to seek and find pardon. The trouble can be the genesis of faith. Let's move on now to the test of faith. Continuing in verse 48 of John 4. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That seems a little harsh, doesn't it? This, this desperate father takes a half a day's journey looking for Jesus, and he's asking for help, and Jesus replies with a rebuke. 
Why did Jesus respond this way? First, let's make sure we understand what the text actually says, because words matter here. The English language doesn't differentiate between the second person singular and second person plural. So a lot of other languages, like Greek, do make that distinction. The text says that Jesus said to him, singular, unless you all, plural, see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. The southern draw gets it right with the language here. So the rebuke, while it was spoken to the man individually, is actually an indictment of the people collectively. Jesus recognized that the man wasn't seeking to follow him, but he also knew that the Galileans, they weren't there to worship. So this man's faith is what we would call foxhole faith. Um, And Jesus rebukes him, and by extension, all of the Galileans, for that idolatry. Right? They are viewing Jesus as merely a means to an end. They're seeking only a solution, not salvation. So, even though Jesus' response might seem like heartless rejection, it could be seen as a test of faith. This official is asking for a miracle in front of an unbelieving crowd who love to see miracles. And he's asking for a miracle for the same reason an unbelieving person would ask. He's not asking to see God's glory. He's asking for his own physical needs. So Jesus challenges him with this gracious rebuff that's designed to help him realize his greater spiritual need. So will this father go beyond self-interest and recognize Jesus for who he really is? This test of faith looks a lot like other instances. Um, I'll give you just two examples. Um, when Jesus, when uh, his mother asked him for a miracle, remember Jesus said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come. Um, we won't go into details, but also the, um, the exchange between Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, right? That looks like another test there. Uh, you, f- you can find that in Mark 7, uh, verses 23 to 30. But Really, the, the, it was the woman's gutsy response and, and appeal to um, God, to Jesus' mercy that showed that she had passed the test of faith, right? Her, her request was granted, her daughter restored. So does, does the official pass the test? How does he respond to Jesus' rebuke? Does he get angry? Does he try to defend himself? Maybe bargain with Jesus? Maybe play the nobility card? Not that that would have gotten him anywhere. Does he plead any special merit? Not that he had any. No, he simply doubles down on the request and and increases the earnestness of the language. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. You notice a switch there um, from this descriptive term before for son to this term of endearment. He calls him his little child. He's pleading in desperation for the life of this little boy. So you can see his attitude Um, mirrored in that of the the writer John Bunyan, who said, I was driven to such straits that I must of necessity go to Jesus. If he had met me with a drawn sword in his hand, I would sooner have thrown myself upon the edge of his sword than have gone away from him, for I knew him to be my last hope. So does he pass the test? Does his response fit the criteria for saving belief? 
It sounds a lot like the belief that we sing about in that hymn, Come Ye Sinners. Right? All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Well, I guess it was enough for Jesus. So notice that faith is actually still quite small. He believes Jesus can heal, but he doesn't believe he can do it from 15 to 20 miles away. Right? He says, sir, come down. He believes Jesus can heal, but he doesn't believe he can raise the dead. He says, before my child dies. Jesus doesn't offer any commentary on the depth or on the sincerity of the official's belief. He simply sends him off with a word of promise. Go, your son lives. Jesus isn't going to be pushed around by the demands of this royal official. He's not going to meet him on his terms. Jesus is going to do things on his terms, on Jesus' terms. The man said, come. Jesus said, go. Your son lives. So by doing this, Jesus is really challenging him with another test of faith. Believe without seeing the sign. So this man is now on the horns of a dilemma. What does he do? Either he is going to stand there and continue to demand a sign and thus doubt the word of the one in whom he had placed all of his hope for his son's recovery, or he's going to trust him at his word and he's going to go. So Jesus forces this official to set aside his own expectations of how the Lord works. What he's doing is he's skillfully drawing him in to genuine faith. He's teaching him not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. By giving him his word, Jesus is actually offering him the bread of life, both for himself and his son. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. All right, now we're coming down the home stretch. And I mean literally, right? We're following this royal official on his journey of genuine faith, and he's headed home. So it's likely he had to spend the night somewhere along the way. Um, imagine the, the anxious thoughts that would have crept in as he slept. What news awaits the morning? Verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Overjoyed, right? But he still needed to confirm that this isn't just coincidence. So, verse 52, he asked, him, he asked them uh, the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Let me point out a little detail you might miss here. Notice that the official asks, when did he begin to get better? So if you've ever been with someone in a health crisis, you know progress um, isn't always immediate, right? You might expect some report like he started to turn the corner sometime in the evening. But that's not the, what the report that the servants give. It says the fever left him. It's the same word that's used when the Samaritan woman left her jar. Okay? It's not a slow, natural recovery. It happened the instant that Jesus said, your son lives. Okay? It doesn't say, go ahead, your son isn't going to die, he'll eventually get better. No, it says, your son lives. Another time where ESV may give us kind of a, not a full picture of the way the text is presented. So it's a present, indicative, active verb. He lives. The powerful working of Jesus was immediate, and it was complete. 
But you can't say the same thing for the faith of the official. As is often the case, faith doesn't come in an instant. It starts small and weak, but it grows and it progresses over time. Two different times in this passage, we're told that the official believed, verse 50 and verse 53. So faith isn't just a single point of, uh, or a single decision at a specific point in time. Right? Believing Jesus is not something we do one time. We must keep believing, keep depending, keep trusting. Back in John 1, 12, we're told, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, there again, ESV you know, made an editorial decision that I think gets in the way of understanding. So I kind of rewrote this as Russell's suggested version. Because um, there's two verbs there, right? The, all who did receive, aorist indicative. It's a thing that happened. It's got continuing uh, impact. All who are believing. There is a present participle there. Okay? That is a milestone on the journey of genuine faith. It continues. It progresses. How many times have you run across Christians who claim to be Christians, but there's no evidence in their lives that they're believers? You talk to them about how do they know they're saved, and they're going to point back to some past decision or experience in their lives. But throughout John, we see examples of people who initially professed belief and then turned back from following Jesus. I gave Chad an example, but I'm going to skip that example. Trust me, there's examples in there. Okay? The point here is that those who don't continue and progress in their belief demonstrate that that faith was not genuine. So I, I saw this truth illustrated beautifully in this commentary by Josh Carter and Matt Redberg. So uh, rather than um, try to paraphrase it, uh, I'll just share with, you, share with you this quote about authentic faith and the need for continued belief. We can think of faith in Jesus Christ the way we think about marriage. If an acquaintance were to ask me if I was married, I would say yes. If he asked me how I knew I was married, I might mention my wedding ceremony years ago. He could respond, I know a lot of people who had a wedding ceremony, but who aren't married. So how do I know I'm married? Is it because of a piece of paper I received years ago from a county clerk? Is it because of some photos in an album? Is it because I'm wearing a ring? Those all testify to a past event and remind me I had a wedding. But the real reason, the real way I know I'm married is because I go home each night to my wife. Clearly pre-pandemic writing. Nobody ever goes home anymore. They just come upstairs from their basement office to their wife. At least I do. Uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, she gives me a kiss. We spend the evening wrangling kids together, collapse into bed, and wake up to start again the next day. I know I'm married because every day I live out my marriage. So I had a, another example. Uh, I've clearly run out of time, um, so maybe just for the sake of brevity, I'll share with you. You can go look it up yourself, but it is um, an example that um, the great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he relates the progress of faith um, to these four stages of faith, and he talks about the spark of faith, 
and the fire of faith and the flame of faith and the conflagration of faith. So I'm going to let you just take those four words, spark, fire, flame, conflagration, and Spurgeon. Google that and read that sermon, probably far better than the sermon that I've given this morning, um, but it'll help kind of illustrate how faith progresses. Um, goes from a, a little spark to this great conflagration that uh, essentially brought salvation to the entire household of this royal official. So my prayer for you today is that the Lord would do that, right? He would work that kind of wonder in all of our households today. Pray that the Lord would take us on a journey of genuine faith and would ignite in us the kind of belief that's going to take Jesus at his word, rest in his promises, and worship him for who he really is. Would you bow with me now in prayer? Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to, like the official, um, come to you in our time of need, but go and trust the promise of your word. Help us to believe in a real sense and in a way that impacts those around us. Lord, we pray for this conflagration of faith that spreads to all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.